Good morning. Please turn in your Bible with me this morning to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 23. In our message last week, Paul had come to Corinth after what was apparently a not too successful ministry in Athens. He met two fellow tent makers, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and they allowed Paul to stay and work with them. Once again, Paul began his ministry in the synagogue, and once again he got kicked out. That didn't satisfy the cancel culture, though, so they brought charges against Paul before the proconsul, Gallio. Gallio, however, dismissed the case, and Paul ministered in Corinth for a year and a half before setting sail for his home church in Antioch of Syria. On his way, he had an extended layover in Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila remained while Paul continued on his home, to his home church in Antioch. But he promised to return to Ephesus, and that brings us up to today. Our passage today is a long one, from chapter 18, verse 23, all the way to chapter 20, verse 1. I thought about breaking this passage up into two sermons, but I wanted to cover Paul's time in Ephesus in just one sermon, and I didn't think you'd mind staying till one o'clock. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have of being able to worship you and study your word in freedom. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word and draw us into a closer relationship with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 23 says that after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. After spending some time in his home church in what modern missionaries might call a furlough, Paul set out on his third missionary journey. One of our missionary families is now home on furlough and will be telling us about their ministry next week. Paul traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, which is where his churches in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia were located. Now, the trip from Paul's home church to Ephesus was about 800 miles, about as far as from here to Nashville. The trip would take at least nine weeks, even if Paul hadn't stopped to strengthen his churches. While Paul was on this long trip, Luke fills us in on what was going on in Ephesus, starting in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So while Paul was on his way back to Ephesus, a Jew named Apollos came to, to Ephesus from Alexandria. Now, with a population larger than Minneapolis, Alexandria was the second in size only to Rome. Alexandria was famous for education and producing excellent public speakers. It was home to a large Jewish population and was a center of Jewish learning. 
So it's no surprise that according to verse 24, Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of Scripture. Now, that was true of many Jews in Alexandria. But verse 25 says that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. So Apollos was a Jewish Christian. Now, we don't know what brought Apollos to Ephesus, which was almost 500 miles across the Mediterranean Sea from Alexandria. Maybe he was a missionary, or maybe he was there on business. Ephesus was, after all, a large and important city. Archaeologists have uncovered the ruins of ancient Ephesus. The main streets consisted of large, flat-topped rocks lined with beautiful marble columns, many of which are still standing today. Ephesus was home to a large temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, with 127 60-foot-high pillars, some of them plated in gold. Not much is left of this temple, but what is left can still be seen today. Ephesus also had a large amphitheater, which is still standing today. When Apollos was in Ephesus on, whether Apollos was in Ephesus on business or not, he taught about Jesus in the synagogue, which is where Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Now, I'm sure Priscilla and Aquila were thrilled to find a fellow Christian in Ephesus, so they invited him to their home. In their conversations with Apollos, they found out that according to verse 23, he knew only the baptism of John. Now, because verse 25 also says that Apollos taught about Jesus accurately, I assume he knew all about Jesus, and he just didn't know the rest of the story about how the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had predicted had come true on Pentecost. So verse 26 says Priscilla and Aquila explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul left Corinth, that must have led a, a, a vacuum in the leadership in the church of Corinth. So Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, which is the province where Corinth was located. Verses 27 and 28 say, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. I get the impression that Apollos was a scholar, an intellectual powerhouse who was also very good at public speaking. It looks as though his opponents in Corinth didn't stand a chance as he refuted them in public debate. In fact, Apollos was so good that it actually caused problems in Corinth. The believers in Corinth began dividing up into cliques, some following Paul, some following Apollos, some following Peter. Paul would later address this problem in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, which he wrote from Ephesus. Apollos was already in Corinth by the time Paul finally arrived in Ephesus. Let's start reading in chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, Then what baptism did you receive? 
John's baptism, they replied. Now, unlike Apollos, these disciples had apparently not been instructed in the way of the Lord. All they knew was the baptism of John the Baptist, whose baptism looked forward to the coming of a Messiah. Not only did they not know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they also apparently didn't even know that the Messiah had already come or that he was crucified and rose again. So Paul told them about Jesus. They believed, and verses 3 to 5 are clear, that even though they had been baptized before under John's baptism, they got baptized again in the name of Jesus. According to verses 8 and 9, after three months in the synagogue, opposition became so intense that Paul made other arrangements. Verse 9 says he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, or as the King James says, in the school of Tyrannus. Archaeologists have discovered the name of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and my guess is that he was an important person, probably the owner of the building, and maybe even the lecturer at his own school there. <clears throat> According to an ancient, one ancient source, Paul was able to use this building from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, this would have been during the heat of the day when most people were taking a siesta and the building was probably empty. So it sounds like Paul established something like the first Bible Institute in Ephesus. According to verse 10, this went on for two years and was apparently very effective. Verses 11 to 16 talk about the extraordinary miracles and exorcisms God was doing through Paul. In fact, Paul was so successful, some unsaved Jews tried to imitate him. For example, verses 14 to 16 tell the story of the sons of a Jewish chief priest who were trying to imitate Paul's exorcisms when a demon turned on them and gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I was once friends with the pastor of my church in Phoenix. He told me that our church was located in the highest concentration of witches or Satan worshipers in the state. He said he once encountered a woman who he suspected was demon-possessed, and it seemed to him like she had almost supernatural strength, just like the guy in verse 16. Most scholars in the Western world mock stories of miracles and demon possession like this. In the third world, most people don't have that skepticism. They know miracles happen, and they know the demonic world exists. They've experienced it firsthand. It is ironic that so many scholars in our universities claim to support multiculturalism, and yet they arrogantly and condescendingly dismiss the experiences of, third, of the third world as ignorant superstition. It's not superstition. Western academic elites have simply imposed their own philosophical biases on everyone else, not realizing that their anti-supernatural philosophy has been thoroughly refuted. These demonstrations of supernatural power by Paul had a profound effect on Ephesus, both positive and negative. On the positive side, we find in verses 17 to 20 that many people believed in Jesus as a result. They openly confessed and repented of their idolatry. And according to verse 19, those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now, this is not censorship in which someone else's books are seized and burned. 
the owners were destroying their own magic books voluntarily. The total value of these scrolls was estimated to be about 50,000 drachmas, which could be as much as $5 million in today's money. That gives you an idea of how effective Paul's ministry was. <clears throat> On the other hand, Paul's ministry was so successful, it was cutting into, his idol, into the idol business. In verses 23 to 31, a silversmith named Demetrius made a lot of money making shrines of the goddess Artemis. And Paul's evangelism was so effective, it was cutting into his idol business. So Demetrius called a meeting of various craftsmen and stirred them up against Paul. Soon they got the whole city in an uproar. Apparently not able to find Paul, according to verse 29, they seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. They dragged them before a large crowd meeting in the theater. Now, Paul wanted to go to address the crowd, but the believers wouldn't let him. Now, this theater in verse 29 was actually a large amphitheater built into the side of a hill. It held over 20,000 people in Paul's time. It was used for religious, philosophical, and political discussions, as well as gladiator and animal fights. As I stood in that theater many years ago, I wondered if any of our brothers and sisters in Christ had faced lions there. It was a pretty sobering thought. Anyway, the meeting was in an uproar, bordering on a riot, until after two hours, the city clerk was finally able to quiet the crowd. In Ephesus, the city clerk is a powerful position. He affirmed their devotion to the goddess Artemis, but said that if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen had any grievances, they needed to take it to the courts. In verse 4, the city clerk says, As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. In other words, he's warning his fellow Ephesians that they are in danger of getting in serious trouble with the Romans for allowing this riotous behavior, and they would not have a valid reason to give for it. A city could be punished or even lose its freedom for a disturbance like this. The clerk was apparently convincing and was able to dismiss the assembly. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So what do we learn from this passage? Three observations. First, in chapter 19, verse 26, Paul is charged with saying that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And Paul was guilty as charged. That is exactly what Paul was saying. Paul didn't come to Ephesus talking about the worship of Artemis as one of the world's great religions. He says the Ephesians' idols are not gods at all. Now, frankly, it annoys me when I hear people who profess to be Christians talking about the world's great religions. Religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam are not great religions. They are great deceptions. And Christians should not give anyone the impression that they are valid pathways to God. Second, chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, has been a key text for our charismatic brothers and sisters. Chapter 19, verse 2, the King James Version says, 
Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? This led to the idea that the baptism of the Spirit comes sometime after you believe. In other words, you believe and get saved, and then sometime later, our charismatic friends say, you should seek a second blessing and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This idea seems to have started from an inaccurate translation of verse 2 in the King James Version. More accurate translations say, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? In fact, even the New King James Version corrected this to say, when you believe. In other words, Paul expected that if these Ephesian disciples were true believers, they would have received the Holy Spirit when they believed and not some time afterward. Verse 6, however, says that they then spoke in tongues and prophesied. I didn't speak in tongues and prophesy when I got saved, and my guess is most of you didn't either. In fact, there have been many godly and spiritually powerful men and women throughout history who never spoke in tongues. So the question is, why not? It's important to remember that the book of Acts is a history book. It tells us what happened in the past. It does not necessarily tell us what will always happen in the future. Acts is not teaching that all believers in all ages will always prophesy and speak in tongues when they get saved. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body that is, the body of Christ. I believe that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and that happens at the moment you were saved. Whether you felt anything at the time or not, whether you spoke in tongues and prophesied or not. Now, you could argue that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he caused people to speak in tongues in the past, he must also do so in the present. But that's faulty logic. For example, when my kids were little, I wouldn't let them cross the street. After they grew up, I did let them cross the street. That's not because I changed. That's because the circumstances changed. It may be that God used miraculous sign gifts like tongues when the church was young as a confirmation of the truth of the gospel. As time went on, that supernatural confirmation was no longer as necessary, and the gift of tongues just kind of faded away. We know historically that's exactly what happened. And remember, in the book of Acts, tongues were actual human languages that people spoke even though they had never learned. Now, I'm not denying that God can and does cause some people to speak in tongues even today. I'm just saying that if you've never spoken in tongues, that doesn't mean there's something lacking in your spiritual life. My final observation is that Christianity should never be seen as anti-education or anti-intellectual. When I first joined the faculty of Crown College, I learned there was actually someone on the board of trustees who said, seminary has ruined a lot of good professors, or pastors, excuse me. In other words, education is not good for the ministry. It leads people away from Christ. Now, it's true that liberal seminaries have often led people away from Christ but a solidly biblical seminary often strengthens a person's faith. The idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual is unbiblical. 
According to chapter 18, verse 24, Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. According to verse 28, he was able to vigorously refute his Jewish opponents in public debate. That takes considerable education, even if it's all self-taught. According to chapter 19, verse 8, Paul too was able to argue persuasively about the kingdom of God. And he even starts a kind of Bible school in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That also requires considerable education, which Paul got under one of the most prominent rabbis of his time, as well as from his own intensive personal study of scripture. Christianity is not anti-education or anti-intellectual. Now, not all Christians need to go to Bible college or seminary, of course, but all Christians should be growing in the knowledge of our Lord. My youngest son once told me that when he was in junior high, he would often hear attacks against Christianity, which he couldn't answer. But he thought, I know my dad would have an answer. And that was good enough for him at the time. Folks, our kids and grandkids are facing challenges to their faith that we never dreamed of when we were growing up. They need to know that their dad and mom, their grandma and grandpa have answers for them. And that takes study and reading. Our church library has some excellent resources to help you with that. Let's pray. Lord, give us a passion to know more about you and to be able to better explain why we believe what we believe. Lord, use that knowledge to draw us into a deeper, closer personal relationship with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.